Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done about 425 of them now, and if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, go to bathgap.com and look under the past interviews menu. This program is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and feel like supporting it, even to a modest degree, that's very much uh, appreciated and necessary. There's a PayPal button on every page of the site through which you can do that. My guest today is Amoda Ma. Amoda was on BatGap quite a few years ago, and we've gotten to know each other pretty well since then. <clears throat> we, go to, we both go to the SAND conference every year, where we both were a couple weeks ago. Um, Amoda is a contemporary spiritual teacher, author, and speaker. After years of spiritual seeking, meditation, and immersion in psycho-spiritual practices, an experience of the dark night of the soul led her to a profound inner awakening. Then, after a long period of integration, she began speaking from silence in small gatherings. Today she offers meetings and retreats, and is a frequent speaker at conferences and events, attracting spiritual seekers and people looking for peace and fulfillment in an increasingly chaotic world. Her teachings are free of religion and tradition, and she brings to them a deep understanding of the human journey born out of her own experience. She's the author of Radical Awakening, originally released as How to Find God in Everything, and Change Your Life, Change Your World. Both books were written shortly after her awakening and before she began to speak in public. Her new book, Embodied Enlightenment, which I have here, was written 15 years after her awakening and is based upon the many conversations at the cutting edge of spiritual inquiry in her meetings with people from all around the world, and it addresses many of the questions relevant to today's seeker. It has been acclaimed as a beautiful and precious gift to an emerging, emerging new humanity. Amoda lives in uh, California now, and, and although she's originally from the UK, she lives in uh, just north of San Francisco with her husband, Kavi. So welcome, Amoda. Hi, Rick. Good to have you back. Yes. So, I listened to uh, quite a few things, uh, all the videos that were on your website. I also listened to our previous interview. And at the beginning of that, I, I praised you quite a bit and said well, how much I enjoyed listening to the interview. And I'm going to do that again just to see if I can make you blush. Um, <laughs> so I really enjoyed your book. I read a different spiritual book every week. And uh, I, re I read this one cover to cover, just finished it last night. I enjoyed it a lot. It's beautifully written, and I think there's a lot of wisdom packed into it. And every now and then I come across some point where I thought, eh, I think I'll argue with her about that one. But for the most part, I really see, I don't even remember what those points were. <laughs> but for the most part, I just really concur with your perspective. And I, I think it reflects uh, a great deal of spiritual maturity. Not that I claim to have that, but uh, I, I can recognize it in others, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> so I took about six pages of notes, um, mostly copying and pasting as I was listening to your interview. And um, we're going to go through some of that stuff. Um, and obviously, we will deviate from notes whenever we feel like it. And um, people can send in questions if they want during this interview. So far, there's about, I don't know, what, about 80, 90 or 80 people online. Do you have your notes in front of me that I sent you, the, the ones I took? I have them on or my on the, computer. On the computer. Like, if you go there... The first quote, I think I'll have you read this rather than um, okay. me, me read it. If you, you, you got that open? Let me find it. 
Okay, so uh, the first paragraph where it says, sometimes the sea is stormy, why don't you read that paragraph for us? Sometimes the sea is stormy, but mostly it is as calm as a mill pond. Sometimes there is pain, hardship, and unpleasant feelings, but with much less frequency and ferocity than ever before. Somehow nothing sticks. Pain and discomfort don't last very long. I now have an exquisite sensitivity to every nuance of life's movement, and yet nothing interrupts the pristine silence at the core of it all. The radiant jewel that is this silence continues to illuminate the places in my body and mind that are still holding ancient patterns that do not serve the bigger picture of love. It's an ongoing demolition project in which everything that is not true is destroyed, and it becomes more subtle as time goes on. Nice. I like that. The reason I, I like that, well, it's nicely descriptive of your current experience and um, nicely written, but it also brings in a point that we might start discussing right away, which is, you know, exactly what awakening is and what it's like to live an awakened life. Many people refer to it with this, this kind of static connotation, somewhat superlative connotation, you hear them, you know, oh, I had my awakening at such and such a time, or when I awaken, this and that. And I always feel a little uncomfortable with that because I feel that although there may be significant milestones and watershed moments, it's an ongoing process. And, um, you know, so I wonder when they say something like that, well, which awakening are you talking about? Um, <laughs> so would you care to elaborate on what, how you define the term and what, awakening was like for you because you do refer to awakening having taken place 15 years ago but you also refer to this as an ever-evolving process okay so there's quite a lot in that that we can unpack <laughs> because I can also say that before 15 years ago there were awakenings okay so when I look back on that there were definitely awakening, experiences of awakening. Now, I don't particularly want to focus on that, but that was just in, in response to what you said, that yes, there are, you know, which awakening are we talking about? The awakening that I speak of 15 years ago, in my experience, was the, I'm hesitant to say final, but, what seems to be the final undoing of the core sense of separation. The ongoingness of it is what I call the maturation that has happened since then. And we can say a lot about that, I guess, because as I meet more and more people and have done over the years, and, and also since the book was written, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about you know, what I, what I speak of in this book, which is, was only published, you know, a few months ago, but actually it was written two years ago. So even since then, I've spoken with a lot more people, especially on this side of the ocean, where there are um, many more long-time seekers, if you like. And I really see that this whole process of maturation is something that isn't spoken of much and it certainly isn't understood very much. The maturation is the, is, is the ever deepening and ever unfolding 
of that dissolving of inner division. But it's also, certainly from my experience, it just becomes more and more ordinary. I've actually come to a place where awakeness, awakened consciousness, the awake state, which is no longer a state, but just a very ordinary everyday reality. I, I, I've come to see it as the natural state of the human experience. There's nothing elevated about it. There's nothing special about it. There's nothing that is on, in opposition to the human experience. It's so ordinary that I've actually forgotten what it's like mm. before. <laughs> and yet, having said that, it's radically different. It's absolute, I was going to say clarity, clarity of seeing when nothing is hidden, nothing is avoided. But the maturation is, is what happens when we have the willingness to be so open and vulnerable in the face of our experience, which continues to unfold, so that all sense of division in which there's a rejection or a denial of any part of our experience, which does get ever and ever more subtle, is really surrendered. And that requires quite a lot of grace, <laughs> quite a lot of humility, and also the, the allowing of time. It's like we kind of think you know, perhaps that awakening is a timeless zone, but time continues as part of our human experience. And time is what many seekers do not allow to unfold. And there's a kind of jumping onto an awakened experience. Now I've awakened, and that causes all sorts of problems. It does. Yeah, yeah let me respond to a few of those points, and you can bounce it back again. My former teacher, you know, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, used to often say that enlightenment or the awakened state is normal human life, you know, because you're talking about the normalcy of it. And he said, but if we're going to say that, then we kind of have to refer to the way most people live as subnormal or abnormal. You know, they're not really living to their full potential. Um, but he said, you know, it, it really is as sublime as it may be. It's, it's not extraordinary or flashy or unusual or anything like that. It's just the way, you know, the human nervous system was ideally designed to function. Then, well, you want to respond to that bit before I go on? Yes, I, I, I agree with that. It's, mm -hmm. it's the natural state of the nervous system before it's become um, encrusted mm -hmm. with reactivity, with, with the inflamed response to our experience. So, um, in that sense, it is not n not n normal because the majority of humanity lives in an, in a in a neurologically or physiologically inflamed um, reactivity to to towards reality, right. and then with that comes uh, self protection when it you know psychological self protection when it's not necessary, hardness, rejection, denial judgments, all the divided yeah. states. Suicide um, bombings. Yeah, I mean, we can go to <laughs> the, the extreme. Gamut. right. Um, so in that sense, it's not normal yet, but it is absolutely natural. 
Yeah. And it's what happens when, when the nervous system relaxes and we, we move from that um, non-reactivity, which may include, you know, as part of the human response, of course, we, it may include um, a, some degree of reactivity, but it's very quickly um, dissolved. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so, you know, you hear some people say, some teachers say sometimes, or other people say, that, well, you know, you can be awakened and yet be an alcoholic or be a rageaholic or something like that. And to me, that's a, a cheapening or a dumbing down of the vision of possibilities. I mean, certainly there can be some degree of awakening or something, but if, if a person is behaving in those kinds of ways, then they probably haven't really worked through the other stuff you said in response to my first question. There, there's a lot of unmet or unprocessed um, conditioning or impressions and so on that, to my, in, by my definition, really need to be worked out before we are entitled to use the term enlightened or even awakened. Yeah, I think that's what I'm calling the maturation process. Yeah. It's not that we have to become perfect in our in our outer behavior. It doesn't live up to some kind of ideal of what an enlightened uh, life looks like or an enlightened person mm -hmm. looks like. Um, but, but where it do is you about draw the line. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> it, so in some sense, you know, there is a danger of, of looking at awakened teachers or people or whatever and saying oh that's what it looks like and kind of modifying one's own um, response uh, even after awakening to, to match that and that creates a whole host of, a lot of confusion. <laughs> problems yeah, confusion and and pretenses you know f mm -hmm. you know there's a there's a the falsity in that but it is about um, you know when when the when the giving of allegiance to the seeking mechanism turns from that to something that is well, what I would call love, <laughs> the openness of love, then that seeking mechanism which ends up as addictions or behaviors or responses that are out of alignment with the openness of love start to fall away and we start to be informed by a much deeper intelligence the intelligence of love the intelligence of openness and that starts to change some of our responses to life quite Naturally, but there has to be that. That's the part I, I think that gets missed out, and that's the ongoingness of it. Because after awakening, certain personality, um, you know, energies or imprints don't fall away. But if something in that response is out of alignment with the openness of beingness that is revealed in that awake state to awakened experience then then it's like that's where we need to be more um in some ways vigilant and in some ways more courageous 
it's like forging the 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 sword on on the anvil of life itself yeah you said I'm thinking an interesting thing a minute ago um, you know I said I said where do you draw the line and people might be wondering well who's to decide you know what behavior is um, perhaps just natural and and and, and sort of um, natural human tendencies which are going to remain after awakening uh, or which types of behaviors or tendencies really should be expected to sort of be dissolved as awakening matures and you, you said a key point there which is something like you know being aligned with nature's intelligence or something um, is that the way you put it yeah I, I, I think that's a very difficult thing to quantify from the outside it, yeah. There is no, there is no description or picture that will say this is how it is. It's, it's a very internal um, sense of integrity, mm. and that's why it gets tricky. It's a very internal uh, integrity towards what is really true, and whether the behavior, the the response, the reaction that is seen as an external expression has to do with. Um, uh, the need to get anything from the experience in order to uphold some part of the self mm. as special or more loved or more worthy or or whether it's just a simple a natural expression yeah yeah, I think the need, that phrase "the need to get anything" is is crucial because I've just been reading a book about the sort of crazy wisdom people, you know, throughout history, and um, generally you find them to be, um, you know, not trying to draw attention to themselves. I mean, they might do outlandish things, but they generally want people to stay away from them. They'll sit on dung heaps and throw stones at people or whatever, just to sort of like be left alone. Whereas a lot of times, some of these people who have, you know, become quite prominent, um, seem to be into self-aggrandizement. You know, they uh, now whether that whatever their inner motivation may be, I don't know. But there's a lot of falderall and, and fuss around them, and a lot of um, you know, often hedonism, even um, indulgence in things, which seems kind of needy to me. Uh, doesn't seem like someone who has really been cleared of all such. Um, individuating tendencies yeah again it's it's very tricky to um, to judge it from the outside <laughs> yeah. yeah anyway we probably dwelt on that point enough <laughs> we, we can always come back to it um, oh, did you want to say more though no no we can come back to that okay good um, so we're talking about the theme of awakening being a significant milestone but actually being just the beginning and that embodiment of awakening is the real journey I'm just paraphrasing from your book right there um, and one other thing you said and we'll come back to that point as we go through the interview but you also said in your book that that which has revealed itself as the truth of who I am has also revealed a vision for humanity there is a momentum pulling us toward an emerging future and this future holds the potential for a collective awakening that catapults us into the next stage as a species so, um, what was that? Was that vision like? I remember you said in the first interview something about this mm -hmm. this profound vision you had, where you were kind of like flat on your back, you know, just completely 
going into some other realm or something. Is that what you were alluding to there? Yes, essentially. Um, I, I don't speak much about that anymore because it, it, it um, you know, I, I don't want to mislead anyone about what that meant or whether it has anything to do with awakening. Um, it really was something that um, revealed itself to me as I uh, went into a deep place of surrender. Um, and it was a kind of, more than the visionary aspect, it was a kind of deep knowing, a deep knowing that that awakeness or awakening um, or this new consciousness that's being birthed is is not really to do with the individual, but to do with the collective, and it's coming through the individual. So it had a there was a thread of that 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 sort of showed me, if you like, or spoke to me about the way that awakening is moving into humanity and the potential that has to change or transform the structure of humanity. Now, I can't categorically know, and I, I don't know the details, and it's not about the details, but it was a sense, and this was 15 years ago, as I said, um, that it's not just about it links into what we've just said. It's not just about the self-awakening and then living in this elevated state as an enlightened being, but actually what that, what, how that pours into um, our everyday lives and what the impact of that is beyond our personal lives, how transformative that is, what, what, what the changes are. And I'm talking about relationship and work and all the structures of, of the human <laughs> species. Yeah. Well, when you think about awakened people throughout history, the, you know, famous ones like Buddha and Christ and Ramana, you don't think of, oh, what a cool personal life they must have had. You, you think in terms of the impact that they had on the world, you know, which lasts in some case for thousands of years. Um, so I don't see why, quote unquote, ordinary people shouldn't also have an impact. I don't see how they could help but have an impact. And if, as seems to be the case, lots of ordinary people are, are having awakening these, awakenings these days, then that impact will, might be multiplied many-fold and, and really produce some kind of fundamental societal transformation. It's, it's precisely because more and more ordinary people are waking up that it will have an impact. And, you know, it's not about becoming a spiritual teacher or, or anything like that. It's about really living the truth of that awakeness right in the middle of the, the mess of life, especially in relationship and especially as that awakeness, if you like, permeates into the relationship with children. Yeah, not as a teaching, not as any kind of special teaching or way of behaving, but really just that ability to be totally open and present with a child in beingness, in love, as love, without the codependency and conditioned love. It's, it's, when, we, it's when we start to unravel or dissolve conditioned love, which is probably what the whole of, of humanity is based on, that we can really start, to, that something can really start to change. So if we start one at a time with our children, then the impact is huge. 
because then those children probably won't need to go on any kind of spiritual path. They really are that. It's their natural state. So that's the possibility. I mean, if who knows whether that will <laughs> actually happen or not. There's a thing in various spiritual traditions about how things are passed on from generation to generation. There's a verse in the Gita which speaks of how fortunate it is if you can achieve it to be born in a family of yogis. Although it says that such a birth as this is, is very rare on earth. But it's becoming less rare if we define yogis as people who have undergone some sort of spiritual awakening. And um, so that too is exciting, you know, in terms of the, the generational Im- impact it may have. Yeah, no, I think that's huge. Yeah. I think that's probably the, the key mm-hmm. to the collective transformation. Yeah. Now, since we're referring here to older traditions and stuff, uh, there's a place in your book where you say, while the recognition of our essential nature as this beingness is the foundation of awakening, what was relevant thousands of years ago is not so relevant today. An exponential increase in the pace and pressure of today's world brings a radically new perspective to enlightenment that asks us to reframe our understanding of what it means to be an awakened human being. I would just add the proviso that... um, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, these ancient traditions have a lot to offer. But if we try to transpose the mentality of an ancient culture onto our current one, that's not going to work. You know, we have to sort of take the essence of what they're teaching, derive what benefit of it from it we can. But really, I, I think, that, you know, as, as the old saying goes, only a new seed can yield a new crop. There's a a new kind of spirituality emerging, which hopefully takes the best of the ancient traditions, but is fabricating or formulating it into something that's appropriate for today's world. And it's still yeah. a work in progress. Yeah, what I'm, what I'm saying is not, not that the core teachings, the essence of those spiritual traditions is not relevant today, because you know, the, the, the essence of, of awakening out of the dream of separation is timeless it's immortal it doesn't matter which tradition it comes from and it doesn't matter which era it's applied to all i'm saying with that uh, statement is a certain approach which is about spiritual life versus the rest of our life which is about turning away from the world in order to become spiritual, which when that's transposed into the 21st century becomes a huge source of inner division and confusion and a great impediment to living the truth of awakening in everyday life, fully awake and fully human, which is where the real transformation is is happening or going to happen otherwise it's it's useless and i speak to a lot of people who who still have the mindset that spiritual practice is is where they do the work where they do the becoming more spiritual or becoming more enlightened or becoming more awake and then the rest of the life is lived in the same old paradigm of inner division somehow those two need to be totally brought together. If we can't see our divided state in the middle of our relationships, in the middle of our relationship to our bodies, in the middle of our relationship to work or money or 
anything that's part of the human experience, and especially today with the whole social and political climate, if we can't see that inner divided state as it as it reacts to that, as it as it you know has that experience and then still holds inner division, then all that spiritual practice is pointless. Mm. Yeah, I think part of the problem is that many of the custodians of ancient traditions were monks and they didn't really put any emphasis on you know the kind of things that the vast majority of people need to be concerned with you know in fact many of them sort of advocated getting away from the world if possible and you know, if you're really serious about enlightenment and and so on and you know for most people that's not really not a helpful teaching yeah, and, and if I may say, in, also in, in addition to that, is that one of the things, one of the other things is that not, not all, certainly by no means all, but there are perhaps from, from those traditions and even filtering into modern teachings, modern day teachings, many spiritual teachers who are not living that awakeness in their everyday lives. You know, there's, there may be an avoidance of relationship or some kind of avoidance of getting one's hands dirty in, in, in the mess of human experience. And I think that that may be beginning to change, definitely, but I think that that needs to change more and more and more. This is something from your book. You say statements such as pain is an illusion, there's nobody here, there's nothing happening, and suffering does not exist are very attractive to the seeker of non-dual truth, but if these ideas remain unexamined in the present moment reality of pain, this so-called truth is a barrier to true freedom. And, you know, I've had, I've had various discussions with people who like to say those kinds of things, and I mean, in some kind of metaphysical, ultimate sense, those things are true. But in terms of any kind of living reality that anybody we know is actually living, they're just not useful. They're just confusing. And um, they, they cause people to dis disassociate. Yes. I mean, when I, when I first started speaking in public, which was actually many years after my awakening, but even then, I spoke more about non-dual awareness and the absolute, the absolute of, of silence, uh, of emptiness. And as time's gone on, I speak less and less about that. And I, I don't even refer to that. And I speak more and more about the capacity to open to life so wide that you know, to soften, to turn towards the gentleness of the heart, always, even if it splits you open in two, even if it shatters you, it's, it's a kind of sacrifice of the self, but it's, it's not an avoidance of, of the self. And yes, at an absolute level, we need to in some way have seen very clearly that on that level there's no suffering. On that level <laughs> there's no me, there's no you, there's no inside, there's no outside. 
But after that's been seen, it's a total return to the world. It's a total return to the human heartbreak of what is here. And I would say it's, it's a return to the world without leaving that place either. Like you say in that thing you read in the beginning that I had you read, you said, um, you know, nothing interrupts the pristine silence at the core of it all. So it doesn't have to be either or, it can be both. And wouldn't you say that that sort of foundation as the pristine silence at the core of it all is what actually enables you to be as open as you are advocating that people be, you know, willing to feel and experience everything fully. It gives you the sort of vast capacity to do that without, without being overshadowed or, or, you know, hurt in your very um, core essence. Yes, yeah. yes. And, and, and the danger is sometimes when I uh, speak about opening to the human experience, then there's an avoidance of the um, realization of the abyss of emptiness at the core of being. So that can be avoided because then there's this permission to to give ourselves to the human experience. But the danger in that is that we're playing the same old reactivity again, the same old patterns, the same old unconscious seeking mechanisms. So it's both. Yeah. yeah. We yeah. talked about that a lot in our first interview about how you know one needs the sort of capacity. Uh, or foundation of self-realization or that deep core of silence in, in, in order really to implement or to enact or to live the kinds of things you're advocating. You know, because if, the, if, if all we know is the agitated surface level of life without any sort of deeper foundation, then we're like a football tossed about or you know, some little boat on the waves of the ocean just being tossed all over without, a, without an anchor. Yes, yeah. and so so we're kind of, <laughs> I'm almost contradicting myself here because it, it is both. <laughs> At the same time, that realization of emptiness as the ground of being isn't necessarily found just by running to the mountaintop or hiding in the cave. It can also be realized and more potently in the midst of life. But that's where we are called to be more vigilant, more honest, more honest with ourselves in exposing to ourselves where we are still putting up a defense against experiencing that. For instance, if we're... Um, you know, when, when, we're in, when we're triggered in relationship, for instance, yeah, everyone knows what it's like to be triggered in relationship. That is a very potent doorway to the depth of openness or the breadth of openness that is required or that, that is possible when we stop either trying to hold on to relationship or reject that relationship, which is the usual codependent pattern, but really allow whatever the, is at the core of that trigger or inside that trigger to, to in some ways pierce us open to the core 
without any attempt to protect ourselves from that or protect the other from that. That in itself takes us <laughs> into a core existential wound, which is the wound of aloneness or the wound of abandonment, because that's what we're most frightened of in, in, in life, and especially in relationship, it's more condensed in that. But in, in the whole of, of life, the, the core belief, if you like, or the core wound is one of, of existential aloneness, and that we can actually f open to in every aspect of our lives. We don't have to run to a cave to open to that. Are you implying that opening to it is a step toward healing it and that it doesn't have to always be a core wound? I would say that it's not about healing it in the conventional sense, in that we're fixing it, but it is about opening to it in the sense that accepting it. So is an awakened person still alone at their core? Is there, there's actually a, a positive connotation to the word, word alone. It's, um, I think Kaivalya means, yeah, Kaivalya means alone. But that's in the sense that there's such unity in one's, uh, in one's awareness that there's nobody else here. Uh, you know, yeah. it's, it's all one. It is. It, but you're it, saying a different it, kind it, of aloneness. No, I'm, I'm saying that, oh. aloneness. In the end, it's the realization that there is only I. You can only know I. You actually can't know anything else. <laughs> I can only know everything appearing in the I. That's an existential aloneness. But coming to that realization and that, that clear seeing brings up uh, a fear of being alone. When we open to that fear and let it in some ways swallow us up or, you know, if we allow ourselves to fall into it, then, then we end up at the, the realization that, or, and it's a very energetic experience, that there is only one. <laughs> there is only oneness. There is only, not the oneness, not the kind of oneness which is about we're all connected, but the kind of oneness that there's only one beingness moving through everything it can't be any other way so in that sense we're both absolutely alone and we're absolutely one and it sort of just collapses that whole notion but to, to come to that seems to be the most scary place because as we come to the fear of aloneness all sorts of issues come up feelings thoughts about abandonment about exclusion about lack of self-worth about being unloved and they're both personal ones from, from the personal story or history but they're also existential ones about being excluded from the kingdom of heaven it, it goes really deep and somehow if, if that's fully open to then we can come to a real state of oneness yeah, the Upanishads say certainly all fear is born of duality, and to me what that means is that the, all fears of any sort have their root in this sort of fundamental fear of sort of fragmentation or, or seeing oneself as estranged from the totality, as, as a separate drop from the ocean, and you know that you kind of have to pass through that portal 
in order to realize your oceanhood. And, and going through that portal can be like, you know, something from Lord of the Rings or something. It can be a, a scary thing to have to go through because you're confronting yeah. stuff that was so artfully hidden. Yeah, and one of the, the sticking points in that is that we tend to think that our sense of aloneness or abandonment or unworthiness is, is, a, is a personal thing. It's personal to me that somehow I am the only one that is so wounded, that somehow I'm the only one that is so alone, somehow I'm the only one that's, uh, you know, that's abandoned or excluded. And then we tend to look for the resolution of that in our personal story. So that's what the conventional sense of healing is. We try to fix it through therapy or certain healing modalities so that we can no longer feel wounded. That's definitely a part of it, but that's not really it because that can be uh, in some ways resolved on a, on a personal level, but there's a deeper existential wound of separation, which is where I was referring to the acceptance, is that really it's it's that as consciousness is born into form, there's a subtle separation. Now, on, on the absolute, absolute level, there is no separation, but that's how we experience it, and it's mirrored through the process of birth. As we're born, we are become separate. There's a subtle separation from that oneness of the womb the oneness with the mother, which is the totality, into our separate form. So it's part of the human condition. Yeah. And, you know, you're all about, like, living the human condition fully, but I, I think, well, I'm going to, well, I would ask you, um, we were talking earlier about awakening or enlightenment as being normal, but as really being kind of special if we compare it with how everyone else is living. So how would you contrast um, how most people live with how an awakened person lives and experiences life with reference to this thing about the core wound of separation? Uh, I'll speak about it from my experience, which is the only place that I can really speak about it. From that point on, there has been no need for love. And I'm in an intimate relationship, as many people know. And, and that's, it has a completely different fragrance, if you like, to any relationship prior to this and to what I see as, as the conventional state of relationship. There is no need for love. There is nothing that can give me anything more than the love that I already am. There is nothing to, to hide, to protect, to uh, contort, to... Um, there's no need to please. All those, if you like, mental and emotional acrobatics that go around or contortions that go around relationship in order to feel loved, all of that has gone, which means that I'm not a victim in relationship. And when I say victim, I'm not talking just about, you know, physical abuse or emotional abuse, 
but the kind of victim that is on a more subtle level where we are attempting to please the other in order for them not to reject us or we're attempting to seduce the other in order to not to not to abandon us or reject us or we're trying to bully the other <laughs> in order to you know we be- we we bully we beg we barter we seduce we we please um we play it small um and so on and so forth all those games subtle games that happen in relationship which which is part of the push and pull and also part of the polarity of sexual attraction all of that has fallen away and that has is very radical it's so 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 love is what moves in relationship not the kind of love that the the that the mind thinks of in terms of being loved or being nice or being kind but something much deeper than that a, 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 almost a divine intelligence that has a very different fragrance which means that it's it's like a bubbling brook that's the only way i can describe it and and that's different to summarize what you just said in simple terms and see if i'm doing justice to it would you say that if two people are in a relationship and both are kind of needing something and trying to get something from the other then neither is really giving and so nobody gets they're both sort of trying to you know extract something from the other whereas if if both people are established in a sort of a self-sufficiency and kind of a natural tendency to overflow to like my cup runneth over then both are giving therefore both receive although receiving isn't their motivation it's just a, a a natural byproduct of the dynamics of that relationship yes that's beautifully <laughs> put i i would go one step further and say there's no giving and receiving uh, okay elaborate on that i'm not giving love mm-hmm. love is the space within which these two forms are oh that's dancing. nice yeah in in that sense the exp- and i'm talking from personal experience here the experience i have in relationship is that there is there actually is no other <laughs> there is and they appear to be dancing in my field of consciousness but that other really is the same as me i don't mean the same in terms of personality but there's really no division in that which means how can i be unkind how can i be unforgiving how can i be resentful how can i be um you know in any way not fully open yeah it's it's very raw it's very vulnerable it's very honest it's almost like there's no there's no boundary it's very permeable and and that's very different from us being two individuals where i'm giving love and receiving yeah. love um that's that's re- that's yeah. a nice refinement of the point i made i guess to just to s- spin off what you just said it's it's like if you're really appreciating the the oneness of life then like you said how can i be unkind how can i be hurtful any more than you would sort of you know 
cut your finger with a knife if you if it sort of accidentally knocked over your your milk or something. You wouldn't punish it because it's you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> uh, so related to the, what you've just been saying, and uh, you can uh, indicate or whether or not or not indicate whether this is you're speaking from experience. You say when presence is your natural state and oneness is realized as your true nature it's very likely that there's nothing more to gain by seeking op- oneness through sex. It's at this point that the ancient compulsion of sexual attraction naturally falls away. When relationship stops being about pleasure, comfort, or reproduction, there's a transmutation of sexual energy that gives birth to something that serves the world. So that might raise a few eyebrows. and People might, mm, people might think, yes. hmm, I don't know if I like <laughs> the sound of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, as you've probably noticed throughout the book, I, I speak about the, the seeking mechanism and how it plays itself out in, in every relationship that we have to everything that is part of the human experience. And obviously sex is, is where that seeking mechanism is very much hijacked in some way by the, by the hormonal system. <laughs> by the biological system so that so the drive to procreate is embedded in the psychological seeking mechanism maybe it's the other way around the psychological seeking mechanism is embedded in the in the biological need to procreate so so it gets very sticky and very tangled up and very often our motivation for sexual fulfillment or sexual oneness is really driven by the biological need to to procreate. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. That's part of the, the human experience. But I certainly, from my experience, and I I, I also know that um, Osho, who was my teacher for for a while, spoke about this in very different terminology. But when the psychological need for oneness or fulfillment which comes from a sense of lack a sense of not being enough when that stops being the driving force for anything and has actually fallen away then all you're left with is the biological drive to procreate but for some and not for all (laughs) that can also fall away. Well, especially if you're past the age of procreation or you're mm-hmm. not interested in having more children or whatever. And, I mean, Osho himself was, was alleged to have had sexual relations with various students, and so he wasn't trying to procreate, but there, he was still motivated by something. The pleasure. Uh, yeah, I, I can't comment on that because I don't know his personal life enough to be able to speak about that. But I do know from, from personal experience that the push and pull, the polarity of, of, of sex, which is based on the need for, for oneness, can, and I, again, I'm not saying categorically for everyone, but it can fall away because there's nothing more to be gained. There's nothing that can be added to the oneness and love that is this that is always here which means that intimacy is happening all the time there's no separation between me and the other it's absolutely intimate 
always. I was speaking with somebody the other day who who said to me that they only felt deeply intimate in sexual intercourse. And I would say, where's that intimacy gone outside of that? Because physical intimacy is a pale reflection of the the, the intimacy, the vibrancy of that intimacy that is mm. always available. So we don't need to connect and then disconnect. Right, intimacy should yeah. be in every moment of life and not only intimacy with a partner intimacy with a tree with a car with a stone with a dog or, you know everything that I mean if we're really living at that level of oneness then we're infinitely intimate with with the whole universe are we not? Which means that the whole of the experience becomes if you like mm-hmm. a sexual union it, it, but, you know, it, it sort of goes way yeah, you wouldn't beyond... wouldn't necessarily the use the term sexual for that. No, And just to put this point to rest yeah. and then we'll move on, could there be some motivation other than procreation or, a, a, you know, desire for oneness or whatever for sexual activity even after awakening? I mean, is there some kind of cosmic motivation or higher purpose or something that might kick in when the more needy individual motivations have dissipated well i yeah i I, i've i've come across that as well in tantric practices and all of that and in the end my experiences and and I, i i don't know how true this is but it seems that there's actually no nothing more there's no more elevated consciousness and that tantric practices and I'm talking about modern tantric practices are really pointing to this open space as love that's that's here it doesn't take you any further or any higher and so when this is lived as this, then there's no need for that. For that. There's no, it doesn't take you anywhere else. What, what if one member of a partnership is feeling that way, but the other is not quite at that stage, and there's a disconnect or an imbalance between the two? Well, that's where honesty has to come in. I'm speaking of something quite rare here, as far as I know. When two individuals when it has fallen away totally in two individuals, then there is something more invisible but more powerful that starts to emanate through what we call relationship out into the world. It's, it's, like, a, a, it's like an emanation. It's like a reverberation, yeah? And that's quite rare. That's quite rare because usually there's either one individual that has fully awakened and many of those physical needs have fallen away and the other one hasn't. And then that has to be part of that dance, part of that particular dance. So I'm not saying there's 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 a right way or a wrong way. I'm just saying what the possibility is. And it's very often not spoken about. And the, the possibility is that that energy that goes into the sexual act is actually freed up to do something else. And that's unknown as yet. 
unknown by whom? I mean, it has been known. Well, by <laughs> humanity on, on, on a larger on a, scale. On a, on a mass yeah. scale, sure, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, th- well, thanks. I mean, that's you've dealt with that rather delicate topic in a very artful way, and it's it's good to discuss. I think you know, because it's. I mean, it's not as you say, it's not talked about very much, probably because it's not a big selling point for, for, in most people's minds. But it's something that they are likely to encounter at some stage of the game, and it needs to be understood. A couple of questions came in, which I think are relating to things we've said. Uh, firstly, our friend Spencer from Olympia, Washington asks, what would you suggest for deepening our everyday communications? I am especially interested in learning to listen to others on a deeper level as the ground on which communication can arise. Yes, listening is the same as saying openness. It's, it's yeah, listening is the, or the ability to listen not with our ears, but with our heart. To really just be the open space, to stand or to sit as openness. And listen to the vibration of another, whatever that other is, whether that's a human being or a tree or whatever, but we're talking about human beings here, I I, I imagine, (laughs) yeah? And that's something we can practice. We can practice that by seeing how the compulsion to fill in the gaps, the compulsion to um, give attention to the story or the conversation or the dialogue in our own heads can be so strong and to be willing, absolutely willing, 100% willing to just stop. Just stop. And in that stopping, there's a, there's a sense of vulnerability because it's unknown. There may be a gap. There may be uh, an actual you know, physical silence. And then the mind will have all these other stories like, oh, well, they don't really like me. Why aren't they speaking to me? Or maybe they're rejecting me. Maybe they don't agree with me. And there's a sense, there's a kind of discomfort that arises. Well, the invitation at that point is to, is to hang with that discomfort, to hang with that discomfort, to pause at the edge of that discomfort and not to give the same old attention or devotion to the inner dialogue again, but to actually just hang with that discomfort and see what happens. Because actually that's where the love is. The love isn't in the sharing of the stories. The love is in the meeting of two silences. Now those two silences doesn't mean that you never speak, but it does mean that when you do speak, it arises out of that. Yeah. And my wife and I often talk about the fact that most people, it seems, are not good listeners. I mean, you can be talking to a person and they'll be going on and on and on about something, about their life, about this, about that. And then if you try to reciprocate a little bit, they they immediately lose their attention span. It's like, oh, you know. And so, um, go ahead. Yeah, mostly when people are telling their story, they're telling it to themselves. Yeah. Yeah. 
So they're not actually moved by love's intelligence. They're moved by their own egoic need mm. to repeat the story to themselves because it fills in the spaces which would otherwise be revealed as openness, as vulnerability, as emptiness, and as the core wound of aloneness. That's where it takes you in the end. Which would all be rather uncomfortable things to face if you hadn't faced them. There might be a tendency to try yeah. to keep avoiding them. Yeah, but yeah. That's, that's where the, the, the nitty-gritty of the human experience in, in this, you know, shown by this example is, or this, this situation, that's where the, 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 the doorway to, to awakeness is in the middle of our lives. Yeah. yeah. Also, I think the stuff you said earlier about aloneness in the higher sense of the term of all is one and you are that um, has a lot of you know, relevance to Spencer's question in that, um, you know, l- listening to others can really be profound if once you realize there are no others and, you know, there's a... Um, you know, everything is seen as the self. I mean, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Well, others are you. And and so if you're really functioning on that level, then doing and listening and everything else is going to have a completely different flavor to it than if life is lived in separation. And And in the end, it's about the simplicity of being together. If it's, it's like we're not mostly... People are not meeting on the being level. Right. They're meeting on the <laughs> opinion Men- or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Opinions, preferences, likes, dislikes, judgments, and so on. Yeah. And they're sharing those with each other. Really, they're just sharing it with themselves because they're just repeating that same divided state because it feeds itself. When we toing and froing with another human being, then we end up either in a battle of uh, disagreement or, or some kind of upholding of something through agreement. But neither of those are actually meeting each other in beingness. And love cannot happen unless we meet in beingness. From that place, intelligent conversation can take place. Yeah? that serves a function, that serves something, and I'm not talking about a mental kind of intelligence about knowledge, but really love's intelligence will start to guide the conversation. And that is both more nourishing, uh, but also serves a purpose, because it's more likely to, to lead to something creative or something, uh, a new revelation or, or, or just more, more love. So it has a very different quality to it. So the capacity to, to just be quiet and, and listen as emptiness is hugely, hugely powerful. Yeah. Irene scribbled out a little question here. Um, As ego diminishes, there should be less self-absorption in the small sense of the term. Yes, and and I guess that's what we're speaking about, the the, the need to constantly repeat stories um, is is a kind of, is is self-absorption. Yeah. Here's a question from um, Nicola in Belgrade. Um, Here, I'm not sure if that's a man or woman, but here she asks... How does the oneness manifest in the relative? Do we use it? Surrender into it? What is there to be done with it? (laughs) (laughs) How does the oneness manifest in the relative? 
the oneness manifests when all inner division comes to an end. When I say inner division, <laughs> I mean, and I think I've already said this, but I'll try and say it again, perhaps more clearly, when the, the, the end of inner division is when we stop trying to reject our experience because it doesn't make us feel good or we don't like it, we don't like the way it feels, we don't like the way it, yeah? In other words, we don't like the way I feel in response to it. It makes me feel not special. It makes me feel unloved. It makes me feel rejected. When we try to reject that inner feeling in response to what our experience is, we're operating in a divided state. We've divided ourselves from our inner experience, the depth of our inner experience. You could call it, quite simply, arguing with what is. Yeah, we're arguing with what is. No, I'm not talking about the event or the circumstance, but our inner response to that, our inner experience. When we live or operate from that inner division, there's no oneness. Yeah? Oneness then becomes a concept that we can imagine as some sense of feeling good, feeling connected, feeling loved, feeling taken care of, uh, you know, feeling we're, in, we're with like-minded people and so on and so forth, a sense of belonging. But that's not real oneness. Real oneness manifests as your lived experience when there is no attempt to reject the depth of your inner experience or hold on to it or use it as a way to uphold your sense of self, your sense of being loved or sense of being special or sense, it always comes back down to this, or sense of being worthy. There's no attempt to do anything with that inner experience. It is simply in the deepest possible way accepted open to it's very innocent so I just wanted to add something to um, in response to Nicola's, que Nicola's question uh, which is that there's this verse in the Gita which says established in yoga perform action yoga meaning oneness or union because he asked about how can you use being or oneness in a sense you can use it in the sense that if you are established there then the impulses of your individual mind leading to your individual actions are no longer merely individual. They're, they're sort of a, the promptings of cosmic intelligence or you know, a much vaster intelligence than is ordinarily reflected in the individual. And so life tends to go much more smoothly because you're not kind of clashing against you know, nature's natural tendencies as you go through it. Yes, and I'll add something to that, yes. which is you don't use it. It uses you. Good. That's the way to put it. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it really does. Yep. In that sense, your life stops being your own and it, it becomes 
a servant or it comes into service of we could call it a bigger intelligence life's intelligence love's intelligence you know whatever whatever terminology we want to use and that will color our idea of it but you know when when you're living from that space there aren't any any words that are sufficient to describe this and then there's there's a whole host of misunderstandings and confusions around that because then there's a, the, the question usually comes up well does that mean that I'm passive does that mean I'm kind of just going along with the flow does that mean that I'm always doing good things for others and so on but that's really not th- these questions are coming from the separate self <laughs> so even inside where you're you are being used by that beingness used by that intelligence there's still a sense of of i in that there's still a sense of i-ness it's just that the i that appears to be making decisions and following impulses is actually responding to that intelligence and not responding to its own egoic need for something to become more of itself. Yeah, you become an instrument yeah. of the divine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, good. Well, actually, you just touched on a theme that I also wanted to discuss with you, which is this um, this sense of self or the sense of I. Uh, you know, some people say it completely falls away, and you know, you have people, especially in the UK, where there seem to be a number of fairly prominent teachers who keep drilling this point in that there is no self, there is no person. And people repeat that over and over again, and others start hearing it, and they, they try to live with somehow that in mind. And I have never gotten that. I mean, I, I, I'm willing to grant people the benefit of the doubt, but the people I know who say that, at least from my perspective, which is admittedly questionable, seem to have a self. Um, as you put in your book, I think if you stick a pin in their leg, that it's going to come into rather acute focus. So... Um, What's your take on that whole issue that is often discussed in spiritual circles? And when I say itself, I don't mean that that's their predominant reality. It could be quite diminished compared to what it used to be or is for most people. It could be like a candle in the sun that you can barely see because the sunlight is so bright, but still the candle is burning and seems to be necessary in order to function as as a human being. But I may be wrong. Mm. This goes back to the maturation process and that yes at some point there's a realization that there's no self um, that the self dies into emptiness um, that there's nothing outside of this therefore there's no me and there's no you there's no self and there's no other so all of this is part of the awakening yeah the the realization that there is nothing nothing other than this and that i as a psychological construct uh, i'm not standing outside of reality yeah um but when that's held onto as a primary belief and then becomes the primary focus of a teaching it's very misleading it's very misleading because it's like half half of the half of the picture the self does continue 
<laughs> after awakening. The self very much continues. There is, it's not relative in opposition to the absolute. They're one and the same. The relative, the self, is simply an external representative of beingness. It continues. There's no other way. And, and it, it continues, perhaps, not perhaps, but definitely in the way that we've described with a new fragrance, a new fragrance that is ever unfolding and ever deepening. And so the self in some ways becomes more permeable or more transparent. That's the only way I can describe it in the sense that it's more permeable or more transparent because there's no more armoring around the heart, around the belly, around the, around the self in order to, 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 to play the codependent relationships with life. So we become transparent or almost like open vessels where life is simply pouring into me and I am not attempting to protect myself from that or to get anything from it. Yeah. In that sense, the self becomes no self <laughs> in that the self and life are one. But the experience of daily life as a human experience continues within that. So to not speak about that and to only focus on, if you like, one side of the coin is misleading. It's confusing. So yes, there's a definite sense of self. Yes, there's a definite body here that if you, if you punch it, if you hit it, if you hurt it, it's going to hurt, it's going to respond, it's going to, yeah, and so on and so forth. There's a body here that needs to, uh, to, to eat and to rest and to sleep and to be taken care of. But that's not in opposition to the one beingness that moves this body, that moves this self. They're, they're one and the same. So that then goes back to, well, I, I can't harm this, this body, this, this, this self. I can't harm this because there's nothing to harm. It's all one. Neither can I harm another because that other is also this one beingness. It's also an external representative of this one beingness. Yeah. There's a couple of things I want to say in response to that. Um, one is that you, you referred to this no-self thing as a belief, but I think for some people it's an experience, which, like for instance, if you've ever read the book um, Collision with the Infinite by Suzanne Siegel, she was getting on a bus in Paris one day and all of a sudden shifted into this radical awakening in which she could no longer find a sense of self. And it terrified her and freaked her out, and she spent... Ten years looking for a sense of self, and um, you know, meanwhile raising a daughter and getting a uh, graduate degree and and so on. And finally, she ended up with Jean Klein, who kind of straightened her out, and she relaxed into it, and probably would have acknowledged that there was in fact a sense of self. It had just become radically different than what it had been before the the shift. Um, so there's that. You want to respond to that before I go on? Um, yeah, I I I. I uh Yes, that's that sense of no self, where, the, where it can't be located as a as a as a point, yeah, in in space and time, is part of the 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 release of separation, the dissolving of separation, which is part of the awakened experience, 
or the awakening out of the dream of separation. Certainly, you know, for me, after awakening 15 years ago, that was part of that experience. And my experience was that I am located everywhere and nowhere. And that's a very palpable experience. But when we don't hold on to that in any way, then it quite quickly, possibly, maybe for different people, it takes a different amount of time, the self and that unlocatable self become, they almost come into alignment, they become one and the same. Then they're not in opposition. So it's not just one or the other, it's both. And that's probably where Jean Klein put her straight. <laughs> yeah, put her straight. And 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 maybe for some people, there, you know, that energetic experience of being everywhere and nowhere. So there's no self that you can hold on to. Um, maybe some people are more attuned to that, and then it's quite difficult to to then come back to not come back because you're not returning to anything but to integrate the two it's an integration that happens for me it was very quick it happened very quickly that the no self and the self just simply merged into one next point and I wanted to say in response to that is that you, you mentioned in your book um, about refusal of suffering and I, and I think you could also in this context say refusal of a sense of there being a self or the the, the, the of the notion that there actually is one on some level results in a kind of can result in a kind of coldness non-acceptance of the vulnerability of being truly alive as a human being on a behavioral level this reveals itself in a number of ways and I thought this was noteworthy because I've encountered these for some there's an avoidance of relationship and its capacity to break us apart um, for others, there's an abdication of self-care and self-responsibility that can lead to excessive risk-taking or even harmful lifestyle choices. I mean, I've talked to people who have undergone some sort of awakening and have this daredevil attitude uh, and do kind of risky, real risky things, dangerous rock climbing and stuff with this attitude. Like, yeah, it's only the body, whatever. You know, what, hap- what happens to it is insignificant and yada, yada. There have been a couple of non-dual teachers who've committed suicide with that kind of attitude. You know, maybe they have some physical pain or some disease coming on and they decide to check out because they feel like there's nobody here that's actually ending its, his life, you know. Um, and, you know, you go on about caring about the body and, and people not caring about the body, whether it's overweight and, and, you know, or even this may extend to a lack of concern for sentient life, you say. They may believe that if the world and everything in it is an illusion, that they don't need to care what happens to the Jews, the Iraqis, the polar bears, the honeybees, the polluted rivers. And I've heard non-dual teachers say that, too, when you know asked by people with environmental concerns about the state of the world. They say, eh, it's just a speck of dust, doesn't matter what happens to it. So, anyway, I'm glad you addressed that in your book. Um, I think it's something that we need to get more sensible about as a spiritual culture yeah I think I think that this is also along the lines of what we've been speaking of it's it's a tricky inner navigation with that because caring for the body or caring for the body of the planet if that arises out of a sense of doing good or a sense of doing right then that's really not the movement of love. That's the movement of self. And in in that sense, it's 
um, not going to lead to any really real transformation. Um, on the other hand, to to remain untouched by the suffering of the world means that there's still a veneer of self protecting itself. And so we can open to that and allow the suffering, the very real suffering of the world, because it's real on a relative level, and the relative and the absolute are the same, they're just reflections of each other, or the relative is a reflection of the absolute. It, it, to, allow that, to allow that suffering to, to touch us to the core is part of the ever-deepening opening. What moves from that place is either either there's no movement in which you know there's just stillness there's just silence there's just the openness of that where where the where the heart is pierced all the way um and we 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 are one with that suffering we are one with that loss we are one with that heartbreak so we're not immune to it but but there's no action from that because it's it's not relevant it's not intelligent or whether there's action because it moves from intelligence either way. <laughs> so it's not what it looks like on the outside. It's not about saving the planet or saving this, that, and the other. But it is about not setting up a, a, a veneer of immunity to mm. that because only the right, the right action will only flow from that deepest openness. Yeah. I'd say that if you're motivated to do good and it's better than being motivated to do bad. I mean, you know, somebody who wants to sort of save the Arctic wildlife refuge is, is in my opinion, m motivated by higher principles than somebody who, you know, wants to drill oil in it in order to get some more billions of dollars by my sense of values. But I, I agree with you that um, ultimately and ideally action should be motivated f from a field which lies beyond both good and bad to, you know, you know that Rumi quote, yeah. there's a field beyond good and bad, I'll meet you there. If we can function from there, then we'll really sort of be beyond the polarities and we'll be motivated by a much more comprehensive and vast intelligence. Well, that's, that's where awakening out of the dream of separation or out of the dream of duality can serve the yeah. world. Yeah. Here's a question from Dan in London, your hometown or your, your home country anyway, originally. Spiritual discussions such as happens on Batgap are essentially a discussion of the human condition. However, for some people, the word spiritual has baggage, misunderstandings with it, such as baggage from mainstream religions. If they actually understood that what is being talked about and explored is really just the essential human condition, then they may be much more attracted to it. Um, somehow it feels like the word spiritual may put some people off, even though that's what they're really looking for. How can language be modified to open spirituality to a wider audience? Wow, that's a good yeah. question. And, yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> In the sense that uh, the word spiritual has a lot of baggage, it has a lot of connotations, and it is about the human condition. And... I, I do actually speak about this a lot. If you if you watch my videos uh, or you know listen to some of my talks, I I've often spoken about how it's an existential inquiry, not a spiritual inquiry. 
Yeah, it's existential in, in the sense that this is about the human condition. And whatever language we use, it's always going to be a some kind of cover-up against the real discovery or the real truth. And so we have to use language to, to have any kind of dialogue. We have to use language. And personally, I... I sort of naturally play with that language in the sense that I come from it this way and this way. And depending on who I'm speaking with, then I hopefully facilitate an examination of what is meant by spiritual and whether that that spiritual concept, that idea of spirituality is actually an impediment to something. And very often I talk about throwing away the whole concept of spirituality and opening as an authentic human being to the experience you're having so that the whole polarity of spiritual and non-spiritual just collapses. Because that's another divided divided state that we divide into spiritual and non-spiritual or spiritual and human. So, yes, there's, there's, there's a lot in, in, in that yeah. question there. I always find myself coming back to definitions and asking people to define how they use terms like awakening or spiritual or whatever because sometimes these terms are thrown about glibly as though everyone agreed upon their meanings, you know. And even the word God, I think, it, you know, a lot of people are squeamish about that one, but it actually refers to something really beautiful if you, if you really define it, you know, not as the, the guy with the beard in the clouds, but as the sort of intelligence that permeates and orchestrates every little bit of creation which you can see plainly if you if you take a look even through the the lens of of modern science you know there's something marvelous and mysterious going on but you got to keep coming back and defining these terms if you're going to use them yeah and uh just keep on unraveling or surrendering every concept that we have that we think we know what yeah, it means <laughs> and surrendering that meaning like don't find meaning in the words yeah the words are just yeah. words yeah of course we have to be accurate and so we're not just using any old words you know in a messy or misleading fashion so you know i use words very accurately but don't over invest meaning in those words listen to what is inside that listen to the vibration it's back to the listening thing listen with your being and then you'll find that the words are just like little arrows that keep pointing you to something and that if you keep on surrendering the investment of meaning in those words you fall into the beingness that it's pointing yeah. to yeah out at the sand conference i was i had breakfast with tim freak and uh, deepak chopra and deepak was going on about how everything is a concept. All everything we, every idea we have, even about physical things like the moon or the universe or gravity or anything else, it's all human concepts. And you know, I kept saying, yeah, but those concepts actually do refer to something which has its own intrinsic reality, regardless of how clearly or accurately we conceptualize it. You know, I mean, the moon. The moon doesn't depend upon our understanding of it. It didn't change from green cheese to rock when we, when our understanding of it became a little bit more <laughs> mature. It is what it is, and we do our best through concepts and words and and whatnot to to grasp the you know what's actually going on. What what thing? Yeah. 
and to yeah. communicate that with others. I mean, if you're, if you're listening, yeah, if you're listening from concepts, then you'll hear yeah. concepts. If you're listening from openness, you'll hear love. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, we talked earlier about your vision for the world. I'm just going to come back to that for a minute. And um, you say in your book, as old world structures become obsolete and die and are replaced by social, cultural, political, and economic structures that reflect the highest expression of human potential, there's a high probability of great upheaval. And um, this is something I've often pondered over the last several decades myself, that um, seems like a lot of change is in order. You know, if we're really going to live in a society that's governed by, as you put it, the highest expression of human potential, so many things are going to have to be shifted around and, you know, perhaps crumble and new things rise in their place. So um, I think we're already kind of seeing that, but uh, I think maybe we haven't, we ain't seen nothing yet, as the expression goes. So, I mean, do you have any comments on that idea? I don't know yeah. where it's going. I, I don't have a comment on, on how Yeah, you, know, you can't predict specifics. It's right. not about, yeah. It could be that it goes nowhere. It could be that we destroy mm-hmm. ourselves completely. It could be that evolution has a different plan in mind. You know, we're not necessarily the only uh, species worth <laughs> saving in, yeah. in existence, and so on and so forth. But what I will say in response to that, and what I was really referring to in the book, um, is that the darkness that we see, the chaos that we see, and that we are seeing increasingly, the horror that we see, um, the, the confusion and you know the, the all of this that we we see is not necessarily a sign of things having gone wrong. It's a sign that that very darkness, that very terror, that very horror, is the place that we that is the catalyst for the end of division. The end of division, first of all before anything can happen in the outer world, in the inner world, the end of division, because as the world becomes more divided and more horrifying and more terrifying, that's where we are triggered into our uh, our judgments, our sense of rightness and wrongness, our sense of righteousness, that I am right even when I feel wronged, yeah? So righteousness is what drives the, the, the division that we see There's a lot of that world. going on today. I mean, there's when a polarity, was, there's a polarity in American politics these days that seems to be unprecedented, and it, it, it largely reflects what you just said, this sense of, I am right. And I mean, even, even among so-called liberal people, there's a, a kind of this militant... Uh, refusal to listen to other perspectives and people are shouted down with bullhorns or forbidden from speaking on campuses if they try to express a, a perspective that doesn't yeah. jibe with the, the liberal perspective so it's not people on both sides of, the, of that divide are guilty of it so we see that very obviously in, in the world but we don't see it so easily mm. in ourselves in our response yeah. to that because I still see very intelligent, very open, very spiritual, very conscious people still operating from inner division. That inner division just is a sense of righteousness. 
yeah and of course we must have a sense of discernment in terms of justice in the world and all that but when we're when we're giving ourselves to that sense of righteousness in ourselves we've created a very strong uh, us and them in ourselves a, a rightness and wrongness in ourselves and that creates further division if if anything's going to change on the external in terms of the division that we see in the world then that response in ourselves has to change first and then we can move from intelligence then we can respond intelligently and that may have a very different outcome so going back to the original part of this conversation that the horror and division that we see in the world is is precisely the catalyst that we need to reflect our own own inner divided response so actually it's dare I say it a blessing yeah it's a gift it's uh, it's the doorway that is you know it's not that there's something gone wrong it's actually something gone right in the sense that in order to cleanse ourselves if you like of our own inner divided state the external world is there to reflect um, it's reminiscent of what you said earlier about heartbreak on an individual level being a potential catalyst for deep realization the, the situation in the world can also be a catalyst for maybe collective realization. It, it is, and, 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 and I, I, I don't think anything's going to change in the world until we actually get that or see that. One person yeah. at a time. <laughs> yeah, one person at yeah. a time. Now, a lot of people talk these days about the divine feminine. In fact, I just interviewed Vera de Schallenberg a couple weeks, a few weeks ago, a month ago, and she, she was talking a lot about that, and many others do. And uh, you make a commentary on this. You say, the new spiritual frequency arising today may have the look and feel of a feminine vibration, but it actually has nothing to do with gender. Rather, it's about something much more universal. It's actually a frequency and expression that can come through a female or a male body, or through any life form. So what's your whole take on this sort of popularity of the divine feminine that you hear these days and in light of the, the point you just made in the passage I read? I think, I think the conversation around the divine feminine is, is prevalent today because it's a, a, a redressing mm-hmm. of the balance. It's a, it's a response to, to the grip of the masculine or the patriarchal that's part of what I'm saying but really the the feminine that I'm speaking of is not about anything in opposition to anything it's really uh, it's it's not got to do with the battle of the sexes or 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 the return of 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 a feminist approach or a whatever it is Uh, I'm talking about the the infusion of love into humanity and the infusion of love is what's been missing and what I mean by that let's go a little bit deeper um, is the capacity to turn towards gentleness the capacity to turn towards the tenderness of the inner heart which is n- not what's been happening <laughs> yeah it, whether we're 
on the masculine side, the patriarchal or matriarchal side, in some ways we're still operating in the level at the level of uh, some kind of, in some ways, hardness. So uh, I'm talking about the capacity to turn towards tenderness in response to our experience and therefore in response to each other and therefore in response to the world, which requires a shift from mind to heart through surrender, not through knowing. And so we can apply that to spiritual practice or we can apply that to the totality of our life's experience. And I get the sense that this frequency is beginning to filter in. I call it feminine because it's about surrender, but it's filtering in through everyone, (laughs) whether we're male or female, whether we're, you know, long time on this planet or just born, <laughs> there's a different frequency that's coming through. Um, and I guess that's what I'm referring to. I, I don't speak okay. about the feminine much, well, actually. No, well, I like what you just said. It was <laughs> nicely put. And uh, I can really, really relate to the idea of tenderness, softness. And you, you often talk about that. And uh, I think it's uh, a good way to function if one can function that way. At one point in your book, and feel free to pipe up if I'm you know, going along here. Yes, please do. Yeah, yeah. can I just, and, just say something a little bit anytime, more about yes. t- tenderness so that it's not, yeah, not, sure. not misconstrued? Um, I'm not talking about passi- passivity, and I'm not talking about just being right, you know, or woo-woo being, or anything a, like that. Or pushover. I'm talking or about, a, you know, yeah. Yeah, it's not that kind of... <laughs> and it's not got anything to do with a goddess archetype or, or any of that. It's got nothing to do with archetypes, stereotypes, uh, or roles, it, it, or concepts. <laughs> um, it, the, the tenderness that I speak of, if it's going to serve any purpose, is a tenderness towards our inner experience. Okay? If, we, if we examine that we probably can see how we are not tender towards our inner experience, which means that when we have an experience that we don't like, that makes us feel uncomfortable, that makes us feel vulnerable, that makes us feel scared, that makes us feel unloved, that makes us feel alone or anything like that, then we attempt to reject it, suppress it, deny it, constrict it, and so on and so forth. Change it, maneuver it, squeeze it, spit it out. And that is not tenderness, that's aggression. That's violence. We are violent towards our own experience. If you can stop that violence and choose tenderness towards your experience, then you can forget about spirituality, you can forget about spiritual practice, You can forget about spiritual teachings and you will live fully awake and fully human because that's what it is. Non-violence towards our inner experience because then when we're violent towards our inner experience, what, what follows that is then I'm wrong or they're wrong or it's wrong and then you have become a victim 
of reality and as long as you're a victim of reality you are separate and when you're separate you're living in the dream of separation and all horrors arise from that all suffering personal and otherwise arises from that so this i this this thing about tenderness this key of tenderness this pointer of tenderness is actually way more powerful than the word tenderness mm. implies that's good um, I would suggest that that our behavior toward others and toward the world in general is symptomatic of the degree to which we are tender toward ourselves or have attuned to ourselves, right? And I mean, these people who commit these terrorist acts and so on, they, there is an inner hardness, uh, crudeness uh, that is just um, expressed through their behavior. Um, they're they're at war with themselves. Therefore, they're they're at war with the world. Um, yeah, they're they're at war with their their their, their yeah, own yeah. fear. Yeah, because everything violent arises out of fear. Yeah, and that may that fear may have a thread, a a root in a sense of injustice, in a sense of being abused, and in a sense of, you know, not being complete and whole and safe and one and all of that. But when we're, so so it has um, uh, a certain intelligence in it, but when we're violent towards that fear, then it ends up, as you say, as as a violence towards that which appears to be Mm -hmm. causing that fear. And so then we have the terror and the war and the, uh, the violence in the world. But if we can turn that tenderness towards ourselves, those of us that have the capacity to do that, and that's a, you know, a vast majority of the privileged Western world, not all, but you know, certainly a, a, a proportion, if we, we do have the capacity to turn that tenderness towards ourselves, towards our inner experience, and that's very often overlooked. If we, if we take that as the only spiritual practice there is, I would say that there would be a vast transformation. Mm. Yeah. We often hear this, the phrase, uh, maybe not often enough, that the heart melts, you know, becomes soft and tender and melted. And um, I think that one can live that way. And uh, perhaps getting to that state uh, is going to necessitate some grief and, and processing of of deep pain and so on, which you talk about eloquently in your book. But it is a state that one can live in, and and then you know there's just this sort of intimate, tender relationship to everything in life. Tenderness is, you know, it's you know one of the one of the things that we're so frightened of is is the experience of loss whether that loss is the loss of a loved one or the loss of our own life <laughs> or a, or the loss of whatever it is that we think that we've gained and is success or or, or wealth and yet our willingness to be tender towards mm. that loss is a very profound opening to what can never be lost which is beingness itself so even when this you know so, so it's a, it's like it's, it's like meeting death yeah you know? when you say tenderness toward loss do you mean allowing yourself to kind of fully feel 
whatever is felt when something is lost, someone, whatever, rather than trying to numb it by some distraction or excitement or drug or whatever. Yeah, certainly that's, that's, that's part of it. Being tender towards loss is, is again, not investing that mm. loss with meaning. It doesn't mean that you're bad. It doesn't mean that you're unloved. It doesn't mean that your life is broken. It doesn't mean that you know, you're a failure and so on and so forth. We tend to invest loss, uh, yeah, invest loss with, with a meaning to do with me. <laughs> yeah, it's all about me. But to be tender towards that is to, is to feel the absolute shattering of loss. And yet, when we don't invest ourselves in that or meaning in that, we discover that there is nothing that can be lost. Okay, shifting gears. In your book, you mention three stages of awakening. The first stage comes with a radical shift in perception. The world of form is seen to be impermanent and therefore without real substance. Shall I read all three stages, or you want to? The no, second yeah, is it. a revelation of luminosity that remains when everything falls apart, an undeniable awareness of enduring emptiness as the ground of reality, and the final stage is the recognition that relative and absolute are reality are are one. And um, it's interesting that you break it down this way because I've heard it described this way in different terms, but same concepts by a number of teachers. Uh, the, there's the sort of the the impermanence of the relative world and, and the sort of like the emptiness of being and then the, the luminosity, which is not only referring to the, the sort of inner reality, but the world itself is, is seen in terms of its more refined or luminous values. And then that relative and absolute are one, that there actually aren't these two, but that there's just a, a totality or a wholeness that um, subsumes both relative and absolute. So... Nicely, you outlined it that way. Yeah, I, I, I sort of broke it down into what seemed mm-hmm. like three stages, but really, very often that's all, those three stages are, are, are experienced as one. <laughs> Certainly my experience, I experienced all three as one. But very often, yeah, you, you, you get to see that, that it's easy to get stuck in, in one of those modes of perception. I, I know in the early stages, if we if we look back, you asked me originally about, you know, was there, I think, you know, we talked about the possibility of there being many different awakenings or kinds of awakenings. And certainly for me, there were in earlier years, different awakenings, but they were always um, uh, some form of seeing the emptiness of seeing the the realization that there's, there's there's nothing here but consciousness <laughs> and that the you know within that all the all the usual structures mental and emotional psychological structures kind of collapsed but that was that led to a gross and subtle clinging to that state yeah so that anything that that impacted it or lessened it or diluted it was seen as um, something to be gotten rid of or that something had been lost. And certainly that was, you know, the, the, the earlier awakenings, if you like, which I didn't see them as that at the time, but when I look back on it. Um, but when awakening happened 15 years ago, it was like all three things together. 
so we're getting t- close to the end of our time together. Um, I have quite a few more notes here I could, I could read and all, but we don't need to read every single one. You know, we've talked about it quite a few things over the last couple of hours. I know that you, you talk quite a bit about relationship and um, how life's intelligence um, is bringing loss to our doorstep for a reason, not as a punishment, I'm reading from your book here, but as a doorway to liberation. And possibly that would be a good note to end on because, you know, people go through a lot of stuff and a lot of difficulties and sometimes it's hard to see it as having a silver lining. It it just seems like I'm being punished. Um, And, you know, why is life so cruel to me? And, you know, how come I don't get a break? But um, I always feel that there's a a larger intelligence at work in the universe that ultimately is facilitating our our evolution, our growth um, to higher and higher expressions of of itself, really, of, of that divine of that divine essence, and that therefore there is no real punishment or capriciousness or arbitrariness uh, in the universe. It's it, it's all one big cosmic evolution machine. And it's not always pretty or, or comfortable or pleasant, but in the big picture, something good is happening. Yeah, I, I think we have to be careful there not to replace one belief mm-hmm. system with another. So it's not about re- replacing a belief in, in punishment or a cruel universe with a belief in a benevolent universe. It's about going beyond <laughs> the, the polarity or duality of those beliefs and examining the belief that there that I am being punished, examining the belief that I am wrong or I am bad, and really investigating whether you know or you know each individual that's asking the question knows whether that's absolutely true. Do you actually know that you are being punished or does it simply hurt? (laughs) Because there's a big difference between the two. And in that sense, we start to unravel our personal stories from our experience of reality. And only then can loss reveal its gifts. The the purpose of loss is to show us, to to reflect back to us. It's not the only purpose of loss, but in this case, if we, you know, loss as a as a point of inquiry or a point of doorway into truth, is 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 loss reflects back to us very, uh, very vociferously, our beliefs that are based in untruths. They're based in in inherited beliefs, whether they're religious or cultural or, you know, from our family and so on. And we don't examine them. So to examine them is not to replace them with another belief, but to ask ourselves, can I categorically, absolutely, totally know that I'm being punished? And if I am being punished, who or what is punishing me? Because I've asked that question to many people. And when we come to that, they're dumbfounded. Who or what is punishing you? Now, we can go and say, yes, my father, you know, did this and told me this. But right now, with that belief, which is the only place where it is right now, who or what is punishing you? And they can't find anything except an imagination. 
but that imagination very quickly evaporates in the light of truth. So it can be a real point of inquiry. And when we keep examining that, then loss can really reveal the gift of the luminosity of being that has no beliefs in it, that has no investment of self in it, that has no poor me in it. And that's how we get cleansed of victim consciousness, which is the dream yeah. of separation. Well, it does seem, though, that if, um, if you're saying that loss can be a doorway to liberation and that you know, the hard knocks of life can actually be um, useful in our, in our growth, that you, you are kind of implying that it is a benevolent universe. I mean, there are a lot of things that happen in, in the universe and on our world, of course, that don't seem benevolent. But if you really take your statements there in a radical way, then it would seem that the difficulties of life are not a punishment, or, or at least, uh, you know, the way... You're, you're implying that that's the way the universe actually does work, that, that, that everything is a growth opportunity yes. if it can be appreciated as such. Yes, well, it ends up at your original statement about it being a benevolent universe. Yes, it does, because everything is seen as love in disguise. Everything is love in disguise. But we can't get to that. We can't truly know that. We can't truly embody that. We can't truly live that by replacing one belief with another. You can only allow that to be revealed when all beliefs have been True. I, I think I see your yeah. point. And then you, then you end up at that. You end up at that. And, it, and it's real. It's not an idea. Because I've, I've, I've seen a, there's a lot of people in the self-development and new age world and, and positive thinking world who have a belief in a benevolent universe, um, in the goodness of life. But, but it doesn't go all the way. It's a belief system. Yeah, it stays I, I on the point. mental yeah. level. So it's, it's, I'm talking about to truly live that, to truly know that without it ending up as a belief system, but to really feel that, which means that you're always going to be opening to that, come what may, even if there's terrible fear there or terrible uh, darkness, you're still willing to open to that. That has to come from examining all the beliefs that, that, that are yeah. in response to that. So, I mean, what you're saying, I think, is that if one really experiences something viscerally and deeply, then the word belief is sort of irrelevant um, and inappropriate because it's, it's like, you, you know, do you believe in apples? Well, of course, I, I have experienced apples. Do you believe in leprechauns? Maybe, I don't know. I have experienced one. <laughs> so experience, kind of like direct experience, makes belief an, an irrelevant term. I remember Oprah Winfrey yeah. was interviewing Eckhart Tolle one time, and she was saying these little things and asking him to complete the sentence. And she said, I believe in, and he said, nothing in particular. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. So um, there's never a good point at which to end these interviews. They always seem to be so interesting, at least to me, <laughs> hopefully to others. <laughs> but um, is there anything you'd like to give us in closing? No, I, I think we've gone in many different, along many different rivers, and perhaps there's a common thread in it all. Perhaps, <laughs> that, you know, uh, yeah. I come back to tenderness. I, I, you know, I come back to that, that the depth mm -hmm. of that inner experience and being willing to open to that and being willing to be honest with oneself. 
where one is being violent towards one's own inner, inner experience because very often we don't even admit that to ourselves uh, and that admittance is the beginning of tenderness nice so if people want to interact with you or get involved with whatever you're offering what are you offering do you, you do like individual Skype sessions like many teachers do uh, I do very few of those I have certain days every month or every other month and they're all up on my website that I do offer sessions but only on those days mostly I offer my work through retreats there's a retreat coming up at the end of next week at Mount Madonna I find that the retreats we can really be together in intimacy and in honesty and you know there's a certain level of trust and letting go that can happen so that the inquiry can go deeper and that it's all held if you like or offered in in a space of love where the real transformation can happen and very often that can't happen if it's just an hour's talk or a meeting but those are offered as well that those are the entry points so there's a whole variety of things going on if you look on my okay, events good. page <laughs> so yeah i'll be linking to your website yeah. and um and i know you give retreats up in seattle and i imagine you'll be doing them all, all over the place as time goes on. Yeah. So people can obviously check on your website, probably sign up to be notified by email when something's happening and, and all the usual stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. So yeah, so thanks. Um, I'll be linking to your books and your website, as I mentioned. And um, let me just make a couple of concluding remarks. Um, this You've been listening to an interview on Buddha at the Gas Pump. Um, there have been well over 400 of them now, and, and we'll continue doing them. So um, if you'd like to be notified of new ones whenever they are posted, uh, sign up for the email newsletter thing. You'll get an email about once a week. Or you could also subscribe on YouTube, and I think YouTube will notify you whenever a new thing is posted. And I won't go through all the points of what's on the BatGap website. Just go there and, and check out the menu options. There's, There's an, an overview page. There's an overview page, actually, that yeah lists all the stuff. So check that out first, maybe, and then just you know see what what interests you. So thanks for listening or watching. Thanks again, Moda. Thank you, Rick. Um, Thank you yeah. for your time and good work to, that to you're doing. to talk with you. Yeah. And, um, and thanks to those who have been listening, and we'll see you next week.